All right, good morning, everybody. How are you? Pretty good, good. Good to see you. Stand up on your feet if you're able to. Those of you that are worshiping with us online, we're glad to have you. And before we open the scriptures, let's declare our faith together here. Say it with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's pray. And those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not be faint. We wait for you, O God. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. In the night our spirit longs for you. In the morning we yearn for you. We say, come, O God. Have your way among us. What are we here for? Except that you would arrive in our midst. Holy, good, able to save us. So we look to you, Savior. Jesus, the promise that you left your disciples was that wherever two or three were gathered in your name, that you'd be there in the midst of them to bind everything that needs to be bound. You are binding the strong man in our midst. Every evil thing that stands against us, your power is here to bind. And you're also among us to loose, to loose life, to loose hope, to loose the kingdom of God. So we say, may that be so. As you promised your disciples, surely I am with you always, Emmanuel, God with us to the very end of the age. We wait for God with God. And so we pray that you would show yourself strong among us this morning. Come, I pray. Bless the preaching of your word. As we open the scriptures this morning, we ask that, as Augustine said, that we would see the scripture of God as the face of God and that we would melt in its presence, that everything that's in us that's calloused and hard, that set itself against the kingdom, that set itself against life, that all of that would be by the gracious power of the Holy Spirit, that it would just be deconstructed and that we'd find ourselves easing once again into your kingdom, captured by the reign of Jesus. Grant it, we're asking. So 
May the words of the preacher's mouth, we say, and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. We're in the book of Micah, chapter 5, and then I'm going to tie that together with Luke, chapter 1 this morning. Advent is the season in the church calendar when we talk about the coming of the Lord Jesus. Advent from the Latin Adventus, which means coming. And so the church turns its attention to the coming of the Lord. And these couple texts that we're going to look at this morning give us some clear indication of what it is we should expect when we expect the coming of the Lord. Listen to the words of the prophet Micah, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. So this is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. And he will stand. Now think about this. He will stand. What will the coming Messiah do? What will his reign look like in our midst? He will stand and he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they will, what does the text say? Live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace. The Hebrew word there is shalom, everything in its place, everything working as God intends. Think about that. That when Michael looks ahead to the coming of the Messiah at the end of history, what he sees is a Messiah who gathers up all of the vulnerable in Israel and brings them close to his heart like a shepherd carries the sheep close to his, close to his heart such that everybody will live securely. So nobody looking over their shoulders anymore. Nobody wondering who's going to come and get them. All of the bad guys in Israel have been put away. Their security has been restored. Isaiah says in one of his prophecies that at the end of all things when the Messiah comes, that everybody will sit under their own vine and their own fig tree and nobody will make them afraid. Can you imagine that? A world in which there is nothing to fear anymore and nobody to fear. All of those things that keep us awake in the middle of the night, that phone call that we hope never happens, that causes us kind of that gnawing dread in our stomachs, all that stuff, at the end of all things, the coming of the Lord, all of that will be gone. As Micah says, they will live securely, and Jesus Christ, the coming one, he will be our peace, our shalom. What is it that we hope for when we hope for the coming of the Lord? I suggest to you that it looks something like this. It looks like a world in which nobody has to be afraid anymore. And Mary fills out the picture, the mother of Jesus, after she's visited with her cousin Elizabeth and found that both of them have been given miraculous children. And Elizabeth says, blessed is the one who believed that the Lord, what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Mary, from the depths of her being, begins to extol the Lord in Luke chapter 1 and verse 46. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed, now watch this, watch how she describes what the coming of the Lord will be. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm, 
He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. And he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said... So if Micah paints a picture of the end of history that will be shalom, nobody looking over their shoulder in fear of anything, Mary shows us why this will be. Because the coming of the Lord means the toppling of worldly order. So he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought rulers down from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away. Do you remember what Mary says? Empty. So all of those who are powerful in our world and who have been misusing and abusing their power, Mary sees that those folks will be brought down so that the lowly can be lifted up. So the path to getting to the vision that Micah presents to us is Mary's path. There is, as you remember John the Baptist in his preaching, he said that every valley will be raised up, right? That's a metaphorical way of talking about humanity. Those that are on the underside of power will be brought up. But then what else does John add in his preaching? He says that every mountain and hill will what? Be brought down. The crooked places will become straight and the rugged places will be smooth and all people will see the salvation of God. So the journey to getting to this picture that Micah presents is something like what Mary says. That the powerful, especially those who are abusive of their power, will be brought down and meanwhile... Those who have been abused by power, those who have been mistreated, those who have been pushed to the side, those who have been marginalized, those who have been excluded, those who have not had things shared with them that ought to have been shared with them, all of those folks will be lifted up. Jesus Christ will see to it that all of those who have been abused and mistreated and oppressed and neglected will be taken care of. Can I get an amen from somebody? The coming of the Lord, brothers and sisters, is good news for the abused. And it didn't just start to be good news when Jesus showed up in the first century. For our God has always been the God who is on the side of the vulnerable. Think about that moment in the history of Israel that began to really reveal who God is to the people of Israel. While they are languishing away in, in a, what's the word that I'm looking for? It's second service. In Egypt. It's going, going through my Rolodex of E-words. Exile, I don't know, what is it? Egypt. They're languishing away in Egypt. Their life is being ground to power by oppressive Pharaoh. You remember, 400 years of slavery. And the scripture says in Exodus chapter 3, that the Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned. Everybody say concerned. I, I am concerned about that. This is our God. That when he looks out on the world that he has made, he doesn't just sort of view it objectively and go, well, you know, that's not really... You know, what they're doing over there is not really according to the rules that I've set and all of that. But he feels something over it. I've seen, I've heard, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. When the Israelites had their lives torn to pieces by Pharaoh and they lifted up their voices... 
God took their side, all right? God, would, like God wasn't standing there going, well, you know, everybody has a really good point here. You know, I think we should really listen a little bit more to Pharaoh and just kind of like try to ascertain his motives here. That's God is not interested in Pharaoh's motives. <laughs> what God knows is that his kids were being abused. And so God takes the side of the abused and he lifts them up. The psalmist reflected this in the 10th Psalm. The psalmist said, but you, O God, see the trouble of the afflicted. Think about it. You consider their grief and you take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you and you are the helper of the fatherless. Those that have no one else to help them, who do they have on their side? God is on their side. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked man. You can hear overtones of Mary's Magnificat, her song in this. Mary knew these psalms and she knew them well. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. But you, O Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. And you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never strike terror again. Every single page of Scripture, if you look for it, it carries this theme. That our God is the God of the vulnerable and the oppressed. He's the God of the alien and the orphan and the fatherless and the widow. He's the God of those who have nobody else to defend them. God rushes in and he proves himself to be their sure defender. Which is why when God takes a body in the person of Jesus Christ in the first century, this is what Jesus Christ did. Think about how often his message was a message specifically for the abused and the oppressed. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the persecuted. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. This was the message of Jesus. All of those who had been pushed aside and left behind, he took in and he made part of his circle. I remember hearing a great story of a Muslim woman who was converted to Christianity. And in her testimony about the difference that Jesus made in her life, think about this. She said, when I was a Muslim woman, she said, it's good to be a woman. She was an Iranian woman. She says, it's good to be Iranian and it's good to be a woman, but it's hard to be an Iranian Muslim woman. And she said, part of that is because of our religion. And this is what she said. She said, Allah had me on the fringes, but Jesus brought me to the middle. That's the gospel of Jesus. That wherever you feel as though you've been pushed aside and left behind and put on the margins, Jesus brings you to the middle of the circle. He makes you. He takes the barren woman, the psalmist said, and seats her in her home as a happy mother of children. All of those who are covered in ashes of mourning, he gives them prayer. This is what our God does. Which is why when Matthew comments on the ministry of Jesus, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, the scripture says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. In the same way that Yahweh God had compassion on the Israelites when they were in Egypt, he was moved by their suffering. So when Yahweh's son, Jesus, takes a body, what happens when he sees the crowds? He has compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I'm here to say to you this morning, here's an Advent message for you, that if harassed and helpless is your situation this morning, that you got a parent that's harassing you and you feel helpless, <laughs> that you got a boss who's harassing you and you feel helpless, that you're in a marriage where you feel harassed and helpless, 
where you're in any kind of a situation where you feel as though power is being misused against you and it's destroying your life, I have good news for you. God is on your side. I'm going to say that to you again so that you get it. If you're harassed and helpless this morning, you need to hear this as clearly as I can possibly say it. God is on your side. And he's coming for you. He doesn't just sympathize with those that are having their lives ground to powder. But he comes into that situation and he, as the psalmist says, he breaks the arm of the evildoer and he calls them to account for their wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. Guys, this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just about some vague spirituality or hope for the end of all things, but it's about the invasion of God into our world to set all things right. I heard a story recently. A friend of mine was telling me about a birthday party that he went to for his little nephew. Nephew's four years old. And you know, you remember what it was like to be a little kid and you have a birthday party and your birthday party is your day. The day when everybody gets together and they celebrate you and they tell you you're amazing and everybody gives you presents and that's like the, that's the, that's the day outside of Christmas that you are looking forward to all year long. And they went to the birthday party and there were about 30 or 40 adults there plus a whole bunch of kids, friends and family, the whole group gathered around and the little four-year-old, he's sitting at the table with the cake in front of him and they begin to sing the birthday song. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday. That's supposed to be like the crowning moment, right? As you blow out the candles and everybody cheers and it's amazing. And while they got to the end of the song, happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday to you, the little boy's dad, who was standing behind him, took his head and planted it in the cake. This happened in the world that we live in. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? have to say to a situation like that. And do you know what I am afraid of and I'm concerned about in American Christianity? That mostly the way that we talk about the gospel actually doesn't have anything to say to that. Now we want people to be nice and all that stuff, but the gospel isn't really about that stuff. What the gospel is about is the gospel is about getting your inner life right with the Lord, you know? And so we're all... Guilty sinners standing before an angry God. And we need to make sure that we get kind of our inner being arranged in the right way with God. But all the stuff that happens in like politics and society and business and all of those places. Well, frankly, where human life actually happens, the gospel doesn't really have anything to say to to that. Really what the gospel is about is just making sure that your inner life is right with the Lord. Much of American Christianity, the way that we talk about our faith, we talk about it in that way. Or... If that's not the way that we talk about it, then the way that we talk about our faith in American Christianity is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about what happens in the afterlife. That we do the right thing so that we have right standing with God at the end of all things. But I want to say to you that when you read the scriptures and you investigate what the reign of God is really all about, what the hope of the apostles and the prophets, the early church is, it's not about the inner life exclusively, though it is about that. I mean, we're called to open up our hearts. As the song Joy to the World goes, the great Christmas tune, let every heart prepare him room, creating space in our hearts for God. That's part of it, but it's not the only part of it. And certainly what we do in our faith is we're trying to get ourselves ready for the end of God, for God's coming at the end of all things. The afterlife, it's definitely part of it. But I want to say to you that in the main, what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about is not exclusively the inner life or the afterlife, but it's about All of life. 
all of life is the place wherein our God has made plans to come and to show himself to be the God of all the earth. Abraham Kuyper, the great Dutch Reformed theologian of the 19th century, said that there is not a square inch of created existence over which Jesus Christ does not shout, it is mine. And that means that over each one of our families, Jesus Christ is shouting, it is mine. And over every business, Jesus Christ shouts, it is mine. And over every country, as we prayed for the countries of the earth, over every country, Jesus Christ shouts, it is mine. Over every family, it is mine. Every city, it is mine. Every hall of power, it is mine. Every church, it is mine. It is mine. It is mine. And what we anticipate at the end of all things is the coming of God into the world that puts everything that's been disordered by sin right in all of those places that belong to Jesus Christ. And that is, by the way, all of the places... They all belong to Jesus Christ. So we go back and we ask the question, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ have to say to that situation where the kid had his face planted in the cake? What Christianity says is that that was unequivocally wrong and that Jesus in that room of all of those adults, and by the way, the adults in the room all started laughing. Jesus Christ was on the side of that boy, standing right there with him. And you ask the further question, where was Jesus Christ in that room? Jesus Christ was in that room in the person of my friend who rebuked that room and told them that what happened was not okay and took the little boy into the kitchen and cleaned him up, got all the frosting out of his nose and face and eyes and everything and looked at him in the face and said, what happened to you is not okay. You are worth more than that. So what do we hope for? You can give praise to God for that. So what do we hope for when we hope for the coming of the Messiah? We're hoping for something like that. Our God is the God of the abused. He is the God of the oppressed. He is the God who stands on the side of the vulnerable. So one of the things that Advent teaches us to do then is to open our eyes to all of those places where the side of the vulnerable is being taken. And it calls us to, uh, to, count, to account for those things as comings of God in the world. I think about when all of the women of our culture in the last five, six, seven years started raising their voices about situations of harassment and abuse in the workplace, the Me Too movement, man, I don't know how you felt about all of that. But when tens of thousands of stories of abuse that otherwise would have been covered up are suddenly given an opportunity to come to the light so that they can receive healing, that, guys, do you know what the prophets of Israel would say about a movement like that? They would say that's the coming of God in the world. And you say, well, it was kind of messy. Well, sometimes God's coming in the world just is a little bit messy. There was nothing sanitized, by the way, about the Mary's giving birth to Jesus in the world. <laughs> the coming of God is messy. It just is. It takes place in the warp and the woof of our humanness. So we, as a people of God, are given permission when we see stuff like that happen in our culture to say that that was the coming of God in the world. And when that movement began to bleed into the church, and now all of a sudden stories are being told in the church about abuse, about scandal, about folks being taken advantage of, and those stories now all of a sudden are coming to the light of day, that is the coming of God in the world. Because God is the God who takes the side of those who have been abused. And by the way, when people are taken advantage of in the name of Jesus, like that stuff that happens in the church, folks abusing power, folks abusing privilege, folks taking advantage of other people and doing it in the name of Jesus, I think that that is the most heinous thing that happens on planet Earth. 
But our Jesus, the one who took a body and walked among us, says that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they might have and so that when the work of the enemy to steal and kill and destroy is done in the name of Jesus, guys, that is the most heinous thing that happens on our planet. And God hates it. And God is coming to uncover all of it, to bring it all to the light of day, to set all things right, and to bring healing to those who have been mistreated. I remember our church back in Denver, we had this family that started coming years ago. Family of six, precious, beautiful family. They came and they started, I could tell there was just this skittishness that they had. They'd wander into our worship gatherings a little bit late and they'd sit on the back row and you know, a lot of times they would leave early and I could just tell there's something going on with this family. And here and there as the months progressed, I'd grab a minute or two of conversation with them and I knew that they had a story to tell. So the dad took me to lunch one day and he said, hey, here's, I want you to know about us and where we're coming from. I know we've been slow to engage. You've been calling us to plug into the life of the family. It's challenging for us and this is why. He didn't grow up in a Christian home. Started, uh, he made his way crazy. His teenagers were crazy. Addicted to drugs and alcohol and just General mayhem was like his life during his teenage years. And when he got to college, he wound up going to this college where there was a campus ministry that was doing like really incredible work, reaching out to young people and witnessing to them and drawing them into the life of the church. And so Jesus got a hold of his life in that campus ministry. And the guy who was leading that campus ministry was the senior pastor of a local church. This guy was on the front lines with the students sharing the gospel And you know how it is. Those of you that remember, that can remember when you gave your life to the Lord, the person that helped lead you to Jesus, that's like a really important person to you. And so that's the way that it was with my friends. This pastor became like a hero to my friend. And so he started attending the church and then he started volunteering with the church and he had worship leading gifts and all kinds of ministry gifts all over his life. And so eventually he comes on staff with the church. And he said, the moment I came on staff with that church, my life became a living hell. This pastor for 17 years, he said, took advantage of me and abused me and treated me like a dog and kicked me around. And he said, I cannot tell you the damage that was done to me. And it got to the point where after 17 years of being in that ministry, and it was my love for him, by the way, that kept me in it. My love and my confidence that this was really a man of God. And no, this is just like a small character flaw. And he's really better in these other situations. And he'll eventually tackle it. He said, for 17 long years, I was in that ministry getting abused like day after day, week after week, month after month by this guy. And he said it got to the point where it wasn't like a choice between like, should I stay or should I go? It was more like a choice between should I live or should I die? And he said, so we fled. We ran from that church. And we haven't been to church in years. And now we're sitting here with you guys because we know that the Spirit calls us to be part of the body of Christ. But I just want you to know that being part of the body of Christ has been dangerous for us in the past. So please, would you just go slow with us and understand where we're coming from? I cannot tell you how angry I got for his sake. The prophets call God the one who gently leads the flock. And all of those who have young, he scoops them up in his arms. There is only tenderness in our God for the flock. But when you start assaulting the flock, 
that his heart bleeds for, dad mode rises up in him. And those of you that are dads or mama bear mode rises up in him. You moms and dads, you know what it's like. I can think about the times that we've had when our kids have come to us and said, you know, there's some kid at school, it feels like he's really got it out for me. And I tried to tell the teacher and the teacher didn't really do anything about it. Oh, no. <laughs> Mandy's doing this over there. That's the image of God in us rising up. Because that's our God. That when he sees the vulnerable meeting, being mistreated, everything in him rises up and he rushes to their aid. So if that is you this morning, if you're on the receiving end of power being misused, I'm saying to you as a, as a community, as a church, we're with you. And God is with you. And so far as it depends on us, we're going to do what we can to stop it. That's our responsibility. It's our prerogative as, as those who believe in just this Messiah who is to come. God is on your side, friend, and he is coming for you. And I wish that I could tell you, and it, if we get time together, I will tell you, of all of the situations that I've sat with, with people who were in spaces like that, where they were being abused, and the good news that I have for you this morning is that we don't just await the coming justice of God at the end of history, but God breaks in in the middle of history to make things right. And if that's you, I'm saying to you that your God is not just coming for you at the end of all things to make things right. He's coming to you in your situation now. Justice is on the way now. The scripture says that when Jesus comes, he comes and his eyes are a blazing fire. And with justice, he judges and makes war. And his name is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And there's a sharp sword that is the word of God in his mouth to strike down injustice when he also says that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, that he's there in the midst of them. The rider on the white horse is here and he's now and justice is coming. It's right at your doorstep. Can you receive that this morning? And I want to say one more thing to you and then we'll, go, we'll come to the table. If the coming of the Lord is good news for the abused, does that mean that it is bad news for the abusers? And I'm tempted to say that it is based on all that we learn about our God from the apostles and the prophets and based on what Mary says in her song. Think about what she says here. Mary says in verse 51 that he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Then he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. And he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. And he has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. It seems on the face of it. That the coming of God in the world and the person of Jesus is bad news for all of those who are abusers, all of those who are, have misused power. But I think that actually, and it is actually, on the surface it's bad news. There's a change that's going to have to happen if you want to play in the kingdom of God. But that also shows us what the good news for the abusers is. Because the truth is that our humanity is not just degraded when we're on the receiving ends of the misuse of power. But our humanity is degraded when we're on the giving end of the misuse of power. Something in us is lost. And neuroscientists will actually tell you that if you study the brains of those who are powerful versus those who are on the receiving end, those who are not so powerful, do you know that one of the specific neural processes that's impaired in the minds of those who have power is something that neuroscientists call mirroring. Do you know what mirroring is? Mirroring is like 
when we're in a conversation and I can see emotion on your face, I feel emotion in my own heart, in my own spirit. And when you start crying, I start crying, even though I wasn't there and I didn't go through the thing, I feel it for you. Neuroscientists will tell us that when you're on the top of the power pile in our world, it actually corrodes that over time. Think about it. That like empathy, which is the cornerstone of our humanity, our ability to connect with one another, that that tends to be eroded by our being in positions of power. Power is not just dangerous for those that are on the receiving end of the abuse of power. It's also dangerous for those who hold power. And I say that as a person that holds power. One of the things, I'll just tell you this, that for my own life, the thing that I fear the most about being entrusted with authority is that I would use, I would misuse it in such a way that I lose my own humanity in the process. So when Jesus Christ comes to us and he says, let's talk now about the power that you have in your hands, he's providing us a way for us to recover our humanity. The bringing down like Pharaoh's mistreatments of the Israelites, it wasn't just bad for Israel. It was bad for Pharaoh. Pharaoh needed to repent. Pharaoh needed to get humble. Pharaoh needed to become human again. And Jesus provides us with that way. And I think about, in the Gospel of Luke, a picture, this incredibly beautiful picture is painted at the end of the Gospel of Luke of what such transformation can look like. And you remember the story of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in this region. And the scripture says that he was very wealthy. Tax collectors had a reputation of taking advantage of everybody that was under their purview. And the scripture says when he saw Jesus coming by, he knew the Messiah was in town. He was a short man. He couldn't see Jesus, couldn't see over the crowd. So what does he do? Do you remember the story? He climbs a sycamore fig tree and he just wants to get a glimpse of Jesus, the king of the universe. And when Jesus passes by, he sees Zacchaeus up in the fig tree And what Jesus doesn't do, think about this, is he doesn't shake his fist at Zacchaeus. He doesn't start calling prophetic denunciations down on Zacchaeus' head. He doesn't do any of that stuff. What does he do? Zacchaeus, what are you doing up there? Get on down out of that tree, he says. I'm coming to your house today. The coming of God, think about it, into the life of Zacchaeus. And what happens to Zacchaeus? He's unmade by the goodness of the Lord. Here and now, Lord, he says, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll be, I'll be happy to pay back four times the amount. Do you know that Zacchaeus probably cheated everybody out of something in that town? Zacchaeus is about to write a really big check. But not because Jesus called denunciation on his head, but because Jesus said, I'm coming over to your house and it undid him. And at Zacchaeus' word, Jesus says, look at this, look at this. Behold, salvation has come to this man's house, for he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of David came to seek and save what was lost. The good news of Jesus Christ is that the abused are healed, and the abusers also are healed. As we're transformed by Jesus into his own image, the image of the one who, though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but instead he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We're getting saved this morning, brothers and sisters. And so we're going to respond in this way, and I'll invite you to stand this morning, a little bit different than normal. But I'm going to have our altar ministry team stationed at the edges of our worship space this morning, and I'm going to invite you to respond however you need to respond this morning. We've got the song of worship we're going to sing together. But I know that there are some of you in this room that you hold power and you have been misusing it and you know it. And I'm not just talking about business owners in this place or religious leaders or any of that stuff. We all hold power in different ways. I'm thinking about moms and dads. In 15 years of pastoral ministry, guys, if I'm not sitting with people who have been misused by or they've been abused by religious leaders, most of the pain of people's lives is because they were abused in their homes. And power was misused in their homes. God gives us our children to take care of them in a way that mirrors his own parenthood. And when we fail in that, it damages. There are some of you that you've got some repenting to do, and you can do that with our altar ministry team this morning. If you've got something that you just need to say, you need to get it off your chest, go. And there are others of you in this room this morning that you've been carrying around the trauma of abuse for a really long time, or you're in a situation right now where you need deliverance, and I know because I've been in your place where your heart is pounding in your chest and you want to go, but I don't know what people are going to think and all of that. Would you please just get over it? There's salvation for you this morning. There's breakthrough and healing for you this morning. So go. And as we worship, we're trusting the Spirit of God to liberate us all. So we say, come Holy Spirit. May the sweet oil of the Spirit be in this house this morning to heal us and to make us whole. Granted, we're asking in Jesus' name. Amen. Truth. 
still an opportunity for you to come forward this morning, to come to the back and meet with someone who will pray with you. Extend that invitation again as we sing. Restore my soul. The Lord be with you. I know there's more lines after that. But I get the sense that for many of us, just to say that, to hear that, to believe that, that the Lord is with us, is enough to get us through the places of pain and abuse that we've experienced. Maybe even the places of regret and shame from where our experience with power has been leveraged solely for ourselves. The beautiful thing, though, about the gospel is that there's more to the truth that the Lord is with you. What we find in this person of Jesus, who was very much human as much as he was God, is that as he goes to the cross and suffers and dies, he doesn't just stay with you. He experiences every bit of pain that you do. Jesus is not foreign to the feelings that you have. Jesus does not avoid the pain that you experience, which is why the night before he was betrayed, he, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And I hope that as we eat today, you would have a greater sense that God is not just with you, but that he feels with you as well. Let's take and eat.
that same night, Jesus would take a cup. He said very similar words. He says, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus is saying that he is with you in those deep moments of pain. The beautiful thing about who Jesus is, is that he is the Lord who saves and heals our wounds by his wounds himself. So as we drink this morning, Father, we are reminded that you are right here with us, that you feel with us, you hurt with us. And yet it is somehow through that hurting, through the shedding of your blood, through that pain that we can somehow find salvation. Take and drink this morning. Now let's respond to the mystery of our faith by singing the doxology. Lift up your hands like this. Receive this blessing as you go. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you. So do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. Where life has been ripped to pieces, turn your face towards us. And let your face bring healing. And where we're hard-hearted and guilty of mistreating others, we pray that your bright, smiling face would soften us and make us holy and humble and human again. And so may he turn his face towards you, brothers and sisters, and may he grant you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. We'll leave uh, the altars open. And so if you didn't get a chance to respond during communion, you've still got time. So head back. They, they'll hang back there, and they'd love to pray with you. Remember, if you're new, we've got a gift for you in Connect Central. We'd love to meet you. Uh, Christmas Eve, 4 and 6 p.m. We uh, look forward to seeing you then. Invite a friend or 17. It's going to be great. Love you. See you Friday night.